Legal discussion on Tip Today is brought to you in association with Lynch Solicitors Clan Mel on the web at lynchsolicitors.ie and at divorceinireland.com. John Lynch from Lynch Solicitors joins me in studio. Good morning to you, John. Good morning, Fran. It sounds like you might need a bit of defence there. <laughs> I might need some legal advice, indeed. Um, speaking of which, uh, John, there were some articles over the last couple of days about all things uh, legal. Will you will you go through them first? Uh, one one was social media, wasn't it? Yeah, and that's a really interesting one because f- would you believe it? But I was saying to you there recently that we've updated our materials that we make available to clients uh, for various things, you know, whether it's whatever piece of work we're doing for a client, we usually offer them a guide. And one of the guides that I developed, I'd say 20 some odd years ago, was a guide for road traffic accidents or, you know, accidents in public place or whatever, but litigation basically. And one of the parts to it that I had historically, you know, that I hadn't edited in some time or looked at in some time was things that you need to kind of attend to, you know, as a client. And okay, say road traffic accident, it would be the usual suspects, like, you know, making sure that you informed your insurance company, making sure you took photographs, making sure you gave us full details of your injuries, etc. And one of the one of the headings that I had was um to keep, in, I was trying to look for a catchphrase, but keep an eye on a PI is what I had on it. And basically, when I read the article or when I read the section to the guide, I was basically saying to people, look, that in accident type cases that you commonly, that insurance companies are there to defend the case. So they'll often retain a PI in order to investigate, if you like, the extent of your injury and or the circumstances of your injury, if you know what I mean. And it brings me in mind, and I think what prompted me putting it into the guide was that I used to do a lot of defence work for insurance companies. So I was very well aware of the fact that insurance companies almost by default would retain a PI to go and check out uh, you know, a claim or a claimant, if you know what I mean. And this was long before they introduced all the new uh, mechanisms to deal with fraudulent complaints because, I mean, we've been I would say, uh, I was going to use the word subjected to, but we've been very familiar with a lot of the publicity that is around fraudulent claims and the insurance companies have been very uh, assiduous at ensuring that we're aware of the fact that there are fraudulent claims. And that then prompted legislation that came into place into the legal system, into the, the, the litigation system that said that if it's a fraudulent claim, not, you know, not only, you know, that there are going to be consequences to it. And one of the consequences would be that um, you'd lose your case, number one, but number two, you could, in fact, lose costs, etc. So there, there are consequences or ramifications to that, which weren't there when I first did this and so the reason that I did it was I simply said well okay I'm aware of the fact that that a PI is used so the client should be aware of that as well and when I revisited it and looked at it there recently I actually revised it and took it out of that section of the guide and put it into another section called the FAQ section which is the frequently asked questions and I put it under a question, you know, are PI, 
PIs used in um, litigation. Private investigators, yes. Yeah, private, mm. sorry, yeah, mm. private yeah. investigators. And I also said social media. So when we had the discussion, there's two elements to it. And I think, to be fair, they're kind of highlighted in the article, but a long way down in The Independent yesterday. There's two elements to it. As a solicitor, my job is to protect the client insofar as protect the client's interests and ensure that the client is you know, fully informed in terms of making a claim. Part of that information to the client is the fact that they must give you full and detailed particulars of the claim. So, in other words, if they're making a claim that says they've got a bad bad back or whatever it is, that under those circumstances, that they need to give you full details of how it affects them. And that if they're going to make an allegation that says... Now, I was going to say jokingly that they can't sit on swings anymore, if you know what I mean, because, I mean, the Bailey case really highlighted this whole thing. But, I mean, that they give you a full, accurate and honest representation of what the injuries are. And that's because they're obliged to it. And obviously, as a lawyer, you point that out to them. But you also point out to them that under the law, if they don't do it, that there are consequences. And number two, that every time they prepare a court document, they must swear up to the veracity or the truth of what's in the document. So in other words, the client now, and this again has been, was introduced since I did the guide however many years ago, now you must swear a, a, a declaration literally to say everything I've put in by way of a claim is truthful and accurate and represents exactly what the case is about. In so far as I know. Well, in so far as you know, but I mean, again, you see, if you flip it on the other side, in so far as you know, I mean, if you get to a situation where you're in court situation and somebody presents a picture a photograph, video or social media comment or anything like that and uses it in evidence to, if you like, dispute the fact that you're not as bad as you say you are. What's really important is that you don't say you are bad if you're not. And irrespective of the truth of it, it's the accuracy of it that becomes much more relevant than the truth of it, if you, if you understand what I'm saying. It's easy to deal with some, if a client comes into you and is clearly telling you lies and you know they are because let's say they say that they never had a previous back injury. Well I mean part and part part and part of our practice now as lawyers being professional in the job that we do is that we get a copy of medical records so we'll check the medical records Mm -hmm. to see if there are any prior and that is there's two reasons for doing that. There's the common sense reason that you want to make sure that the client doesn't forget and number two you want to make sure that you present an accurate picture and you compare the picture presenting to the evidence that you're reducing and you must match the two of them and so when sorry so along giving you a kind of a long-winded response when I read the article I thought to myself yeah we actually sat down and thought about it and we said well there's a there's a second side of to the function that a lawyer has which is rarely uh, kind of highlighted and that is that as a lawyer you're often being reminded by a judge when you're standing in front of them they'll often say to you 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 know when I say often they will commonly say you're an officer of the court I'm relying on you as an officer of the court to do right by the court so in other words as a solicitor under 
kind of ancient, I mean, it's been there from time immemorial, part of the responsibility of a lawyer appearing before the courts is that they have a responsibility to the court as well as to their client. So if, if, if I'm standing there, it's often a question that's asked of you, you know, if the client... You, you know, if the client tells you something which you know is untrue and you have evidence to the effect that it's untrue, do you have a responsibility? Well, the answer is yes, you do, because as an officer of the court, you must ensure that you present a case that you know to be, insofar as you can, as you, insofar as you know, is accurate and true, mm. but that you don't do the, the opposite. So when you're looking at this whole, whole area of warning somebody about the fact of life, i.e. social media, which is now a fact of life. Mm. What we were trying to do when we said, when we set this out in our guide, which is bringing me to the end of what we, we did, and I looked at it this morning, I said, in the guide we say to people, look, be aware of the fact that insurance companies retain PI personal, or sorry, private investigators, and that it's their job to ensure that they check out the case, and that's part, part of the process. Secondly, be aware of the fact that social media is there, and that obviously social media can also be used in the court. And where we we ended with it was we said it's important that we're told accurately how your injury affects you and how the accident happened we ha- you know that we have a responsibility right. to ensure to do that and that you have a responsibility to do that as well and sometimes kind of uh, to make a comment on it sometimes there's quite a lot of media spotlighting on the fraudulent claims but like don't forget that there is the whole middle ground there between the fraudulent claim and bringing a case to hearing and presenting evidence and you presenting one version and me presenting another version. And the whole system is based on me representing one side, presenting the picture insofar as I'm mm. obliged to present it, and the other side presenting right. the opposite so picture. A whole spectrum and there. there's a whole spectrum yeah. of. So, as I, as I often say to people, you know, truth is too difficult to one to but, argue in a court. But could I, I could grossly simplify what you're saying about social media? I mean, the big thing there is somebody comes along, they give you information that they've had a very bad back injury, and they're seen to be limbo dancing on a social yeah, media page. Exactly. I mean, yeah. that that's the simple yeah thing and the there. straight answer to and that, that is admissible then of course it's admissible and secondly if i know that they've been limbo dancing in social media i have a legal responsibility to the court to ensure that that's that right. i do not present the case but on the, the, basis the big nightmare don't. for you is you present your case as you think it should be presented and somebody then produces the evidence correct. of the limbo dancing correct. that's that's the nightmare isn't it well the, the nightmare scenario is the client doesn't give you the information yeah. Yeah. and therefore and the only way and like the important thing I think that's really kind of key here is that we now are obliged to, to to tell the client that by the way you're signing off on this you're actually like in the past there wouldn't be a sign off mm. I mean I'll always remember a client being put in the witness box uh, and it happened quite a lot you know the person going to the witness box keep making their case saying what happened etc and then you'd have the opposite number sitting there asking them questions mm. with a whole list of information 
and the information that would be there would be pulled out of the paperwork that was lodged in court because when you when you when you put it at its simplest if I make a case I've got to put that case out in writing right. and I've got to put them in court documents so when somebody when you get to hearing what the judge has and what the other side have is everything you've put in those documents. And historically, you see, you didn't have these extra bits, which were the declaration saying, I've put this information in this document, I've read it, I understand it, and it is correct and accurate, and I'm signing off on it. That's the new piece that came in the last number of years right. that wasn't there historically. So historically you'd have somebody asking you Fran, you, but in your civil bill or in your such and such a document you said this, you mightn't have known you said it insofar as you mightn't have gone through the document, it might have been drafted by your solicitor right. and or your barrister or whatever and you mightn't have read it, you mightn't have actually been familiar with it. Now you're obliged to read it, now you, you take ownership of your own facts and your own information as supplied in right. your sign-off. And, and you're responsible for that. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that came up, of course, was the whole business of whiplash. And a huge percentage of people, for instance, uh, when they get a settlement, uh, suddenly their whiplash um, uh, medical interventions stop. Yeah, well, I mean, whiplash is uh, kind of a little bit, I was going to say a little bit like... Uh cockfighting. <laughs> don't mention the war. Please don't bring up the cockfighting. <laughs> but it's a bit like it's 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 You're very bold. Uh, it reminds me of when I was started back and there were two consultants that used to give evidence in litigation cases and one fellow would get into the box and he would have a lovely diagram of the back and whiplash and the neck and how it happens and you know forward momentum back momentum and bang whiplash you know the standard Mm. if you quickly flick you know any of the bones Mm. and do it with enough force you could get whiplash and he used to say present this as you know scientific and then up would get the next guy and it was like uh it was like Laurel and Hardy to a certain extent, if you know what I mean, although maybe not because they weren't always opposites. But if you can, if you can give me something that's opposites, but it's like presenting black and white. Mm. And up would come the next guy and he'd go, there's no such thing as whiplash. As far as I'm concerned, there is no such thing as whiplash. Sure, you could be out pulling a weed and you could get whiplash, etc., etc. And it was for years and years and years the two of them uh, really two really nice fellas and they'd go off at the end of the case and have a cup of tea or a (laughs) cup of coffee or a pint or whatever you know and it was just like every time it rolled out and for as long as there has been whiplash there has been the argument about whether does mm. it exist or does it not because exist? Because it doesn't show up particularly exactly. on X-rays. Well, you see, what does show up on X-rays, uh, um, in my experience now, and I'm not putting on a medical hat because I don't have one. Or maybe I have one, but I don't, I don't wear it too often. But the, the, I mean, the thing about it is, it, it's the other classic as well. If you look at your spine, you look at my spine, and you look at the wear and tear that's on the spine, the question is, to what extent is the injury attributable to wear and tear and to what extent is it attributable to ageing, the ageing process, you know. And therein lies another argument that is constantly there. And the only thing as lawyers that we can do is to rely on medical evidence and 
you know, and if I'm acting for the plaintiff, the person mm. taking the case, my medical expert may say one thing, and you, as I say, you could have Dumbledee or whatever, Twiddle and whatever it is, but you, and the other fellow will say the opposite. But I do, I do remember that there was an article, which I couldn't get my hands on this morning, there was an article on in the Gazette, which is really funny, it's the Lawyers magazine, and it was written by, uh, it was research done on whiplash injuries and injuries compared to other jurisdictions. And the thrust of the article was that there isn't this wide divergence that we're suggesting between jurisdictions, that in fact it doesn't stand up. And if you look at the detail of this whiplash story that's that's come up again, Mm. it's based on a hundred people are checking out with so many people coming out of one particular clinic as to whether they came back or not. For treatment, yeah. For treatment. And to but, start, but it was a huge percentage didn't come back, wasn't oh, it? Oh yeah, but I mean, yeah, but I mean, yeah, but the fact of the matter is that unless you looked at each one of those individual cases, unless you checked whether each of those cases was taken to court, whether in fact there was or were not claims on them, whether or not the allegation Bad was made... John. Oh no, but I'm serious. I'm saying that. But but don't we all do we all not accept that that whiplash is kind of a bit kind of you know? It's a bit no what? It's a it's a bit grey. <laughs> leave, leave the cockfighting out of this. <laughs> it's a bit grey, isn't it? In terms, of, I mean, really. Well, you know. uh, if you've ever had whiplash, I would I would strongly suggest to you that you will never argue that it's grey. If somebody suffers from whiplash injury and it is a inverted commas genuine whiplash injury, I can assure you there right. is. And but really is it not transient? I no, mean, is, is the muscle damage is supposed to clear itself up after no, what there, six weeks or so? And but exactly. But therein therein lies the issue. The issue isn't whether or not they didn't come back. The issue is what kind of time period are you talking about? And the issue is how long did each individual claim that they had whiplash whiplash for? And unless you're arguing that if somebody had a six week or ten week or twelve week or four month whiplash that they're not entitled to any compensation at all in a road traffic accident and that's a completely different argument. That's the extent of do you introduce a threshold to claim and say anything below a certain figure, forget about it. You're not getting anything. All right. The other thing, and I only have a couple of minutes for this, but I'm fascinated by it, is the taxing master because there's been a reduction of legal costs. Uh, but would you explain the role of the taxing master? Yeah. First of all? One of the interesting things about lawyers is that we're subjected to and have been subjected to for centuries now, I think. Maybe centuries is an exaggeration, but for, for quite a considerable time, we've we've been under the jurisdiction of what we call the taxing master. And the taxing master is an appointed, court-appointed officer who will literally adjudicate on bills. So if I give you a bill in the morning, you can go off to the taxing master and say, I think John Lynch is after charging me too much here, hardly ever too little, but I think he's after charging me too much. And he'll look at it and go, okay, right, fair enough. I think maybe he has or maybe he hasn't, and he'll adjudicate on the bill. So that's the function of the taxing master. The reason it hit the headlines recently is for two reasons. Number one, it's been changed. They're no longer called taxing masters. They're now given them a new name. They're now uh, costs adjudicators, which is the same thing, but maybe more comprehensible, if you know what I mean. So they're going to be costs adjudicators. Mm. They've been there for a long, long time. And the, the, the second, so that's not a news story. It's just you've changed, they've changed the focus of it. So any client of mine, and I am a, obliged to tell them, and hopefully I do tell them all, 
that any client of mine is entitled to look at a bill and say, I think you've overcharged me and go off and get somebody to check it out. The second thing is that uh, I'm not inviting anybody to do it, but it is available to anybody to do that. The other part of the story was that the taxing master had slashed these bills by a third. And funny... I have a taxation. I do a lot of my own taxations, as in these adjudications. I do them like you can appoint a costs accountant to do them. But we do a lot of our own because we like to have a good idea as to what you know is a a, a fair, reasonable fee based mm. on an independent assessment of it, which is what this is. And um, the slashing that we're talking about is in the context that the new legislation now says that if you get it wrong by more than 15%, you get penalised. One way or the other. So and how, how are you penalised? You're penalised in costs, having to pay the costs of the other side and are paying the, the, their stamp duty on this. The, the state gets right. paid every time there's a taxation. There's a taxation cost. On, so there's a, there's a fee payable to the state every time the adjudicator makes his adjudication, if you know what I mean. Right. So you pay that fee. So if I put in a bill and my bill gets lowered by more than 15%, I will end up paying the fee, costs possibly of the other side, and the fee. So, But analysis of your costs, is that not subjective? Because, I mean, I presume, you know, in terms of the services I might avail of if I go into Lynch mm, solicitors, mm. It, it would be varied, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, I might yeah. be a half an hour discussing something, busy, yeah. or it could be two hours discussing yeah. something, yeah. you know. Yeah, well, no, and it's that's a very good point because you see ironically enough that is the point that you make every time you try and tax a bill you say well this case is different it's yeah. not the same as the other one you taxed a week ago it's not the same as the one we did la- every case is different every case it carries a different level of commitment etc but it's the job of the adjudicator the independent guy to assess that and say well actually in this case it warrants a bit more of a fee but the problem and the comment that I would make on the comment about the one-third cut is that the bills of costs that you're talking about reducing covers everything, absolutely everything. So if you've got a doctor in from the UK who charges two grand to attend the High Court, the taxi master might only allow him 500, which mm. case there's 1,500 disallowed. You might have your barrister who might look for a fee of whatever it is and gets reduced by a third. You then have your fee going in looking for X that might get reduced and you see to a certain extent what they're trying to cut out is which is you know the fear that you underestimate your fee so what people end, end up doing is the old Irish way of you know yeah. go look for way more than you should, than you should which, which is often the reason that yeah. we do our the, own the only thing is if you reduce, if you take experts coming in from abroad mm. and you reduce their fee yeah. very few of them will want to come in Correct, but then you end up. You see, most of the bills of costs that we're talking about here, are, and I, this will really just complicate things, are called party and party costs. Party and party costs are the costs in litigation that the other party, i.e., let's say the the insurance company, has to pay. But the insurance company only has to pay what's absolutely necessary right. to get the case to the hearing. He. 
the insurance company does not have to pay that surcharge to get in that expert in from the UK, doesn't have to pay the f- extra fees that the engineer might charge to look at the scene, doesn't have to pay every time your client comes in and talks to you, doesn't have to pay. So there's a load of stuff right. that doesn't have to be paid, just to complicate. Very interesting. Uh, Raymond was on to us and he says, on top of my uh, knowledge of cockfighting, he, seems, <laughs> he says, I now seem to be a medical expert as well. <laughs> John, it's always a pleasure. Thank you.